Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, show me the money. Money. It built the country and corrupted politics built masses, brought up masses within the country up and attracted millions within the outside the country in search of it. Its very essence serves as the title for this era. But where did this money come from? Who issued it? Why was the fight over the nature of money so fierce and visceral to so many Americans during this time? And why did it end to the in the reserve system we know today? Here with me to discuss at least some of these questions is Dr. George Selgin. Emeritus Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. George, welcome. It's nice to be here. So let me start with the question I ask almost all of my guests. Let us imagine uh, an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville, or perhaps uh, a European expert in finance, comes to visit uh, the United States at the beginning of our period, say in 1865-66, in the middle of our period, say in around the 1890s, at the end of our period, in the, year, in the year 1920, to understand how exactly an increasingly incredibly wealthy country is financing its government, its business, and its civil society. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, when they, if they came during the Civil War, they'd find a currency system that was in flux. Because before the Civil War, uh, paper currency was supplied only by state-chartered institutions, and there were already many hundreds of them. Uh, and uh, it was a motley arrangement. Uh, there were uh, notes of all these uh, banks uh, that uh, tended to circulate locally, uh, but less, less so away from the banks that issued them. And there were lots of reasons why. Uh, the fact is that none of the banks had branches or they had only a few branches uh, in their home state, nothing outside of their home state. So when the notes wandered far away from their source, they tended to command less than their full value, and this was perceived as a problem, though there were some notes that were much better than others. Anyway, when the war started, the federal government got involved in issuing currency. It hadn't been involved since the demise of the Second Bank of the United States in 1936, but now it was going to get back into the business for a number of reasons. The big one was revenue. But very briefly, it started by issuing treasury notes, which were a, a kind of paper currency that was a direct claim on the federal government. And very shortly after it began doing so, the country went off the gold standard. So those treasury notes, better known as greenbacks, actually became the standard money 
of the country for some years to come uh, with the gold standard, as it were, in abeyance during this time. The, uh, the next step the federal government took was to start establishing new federally chartered banks not a single bank, as it had done in the past, but uh, a whole bunch of them called national banks. And those banks also were empowered to issue paper currency called national bank notes. So uh, you still had, at this time, all the state banks, or most of them issuing currency. Now you had the greenbacks as well, and the national bank notes. And uh, uh, the government had hoped that the national bank notes would replace state bank notes. Well, they didn't. The state bank notes remained popular. So the final step during this period came uh, in 1866, actually just after the war ended or some, some months after it ended, when the uh, government imposed a prohibitive tax on state bank notes, finally forcing state banks to give up the currency business and indeed forcing many of them out of business. So after that, starting at the, uh, in the last months of 1866, the U.S. currency stock consists only of notes issued by federally chartered national banks and greenbacks. In, nine, in 1879, all of those would be made convertible into gold again, so uh, we'd be back on a gold standard. But in the meantime, <laughs> the, the greenback standard uh, uh, persisted. Uh, okay. Um, so moving forward a little bit uh, to, what, to what opponents of the gold standard called the crime of 1873 when the United States decided we are going on a gold standard. Everything needs to be converted into gold. Uh, and I guess just very basically, what exactly was the gold standard uh, that was imposed, uh, frankly, very rigidly for the next several decades? Uh, and why indeed was it adhered to so incredibly rigidly when, as you said, during the Civil War and before, uh, the American currency system had been uh, more flexible? Well, the U.S. had, uh, from the onset, been committed to some kind of specie standard. Actually, the dollar was defined both as a quantity of gold and as a quantity of silver. And I should say, at that time, uh, no one doubted that, uh, that money should have a metallic basis. This was... Uh, pretty much the universal opinion, and it had been for, for a long time. But in the United States, if anything, there was a stronger than usual sentiment uh, in favor of a metallic standard than uh, in some other places, because during the uh, Revolutionary uh, War, there, there was a widespread resort to a continental currency, which became inconvertible, and which ultimately became worthless, hence the phrase, uh, not worth a continental, which is falling out of use, but <laughs> until not long ago, it meant that something was worthless. So, in reaction, it was in reaction to that that the founders uh, determined to place the new U.S. dollar created uh, for uh, uh, the, 
the uh, now independent United States, to place it on a gold or silver standard. So <laughs> that's the background. Now, uh, the problem with defining uh, a currency in terms of two metals instead of just one is that in practice, one metal is going to be legally overvalued relative to the other. That, that is, their legal, the legal uh, value of a dollar in terms of gold or silver, one or the other, is going to be too high relative to the values of the two underlying mess, uh, uh, metals. And so what happened was, in practice, we were on a silver standard at first because silver was the overvalued metal, which means, which meant that uh, people would bring it to the mint to be coined, but they wouldn't bring gold. After the 1830s, uh, new gold discoveries uh, reduced its market value, and so we spontaneously tended to shift to a, a gold standard. And we were st still on a de facto gold standard when the Civil War broke out. Uh, then, of course, we were on a greenback standard. Okay, now <laughs> I've got to get to the crime of 1873. In fact, uh, in 1873, no one thought that a crime had been committed, whether it was about gold or silver or anything else concerning money. All that happened that year was that uh, the coining of silver dollars was not provided for in the Mint Act for the first time. But that, <clears throat> that was a reflection of the fact that no one had been bringing silver to the Mint to be coined for some time, for the reasons I explained before. Gold was still the overvalued metal. So we would have been on a gold standard uh, in 1873 if we hadn't been on a greenback standard with or without that law. And we would have stayed on a gold standard until the 1890s. Uh, but because the because gold was legally overvalued and later the value of gold declined, what people realized by the 1890s was that if it hadn't been for that 1873 act, we'd have switched again to a silver standard, and that's when they started calling it a crime. So it's a long, complicated story. But the, the upshot is that by the 1890s, a lot of people were regretting that we were on a gold standard and that silver wasn't, was no longer, had been in effect officially demonetized because the mint wouldn't coin it. And they were wishing that uh, that would change again they wanted a silver standard restored. And all of this was happening because of the deflation that had been taking place starting in the 1870s. So that's how you got the, the, the silverite movement, so-called. People saying that they wanted to get back on a silver standard. They wanted the mint to be coining silver coins. But they didn't have their way. It didn't happen. In fact, on the contrary, in 1900, the Gold Standard Act was passed. And that, for the first time, defined the dollar only in terms of gold. Silver was now no longer uh, an official metallic money. So that's the long story of the crime of 1873. Uh, I just want to add, though, uh, that uh, they're, they're underlying all of this <laughs> is the concern 
that some sort of metallic anchor is necessary. Let's not forget that during the Civil War period uh, and until 1879, when we were off of the gold standard, the price level in this in the United States rose dramatically. That is, the, the greenback supply uh, expanded, the total money supply expanded, and this is the sort of thing that typically happens with paper monies, especially when they're used during war times. So the general preference for some kind of metallic basis was whether it was silver or gold rested on people's belief, for which there was a lot of uh, justification, that when money wasn't convertible into silver or gold, there would be a tendency for it to be overissued and for inflation to result. That's a great introduction. I thought I might uh, latch on to what you were mentioning about the problem of deflation. Now, I've seen uh, different assessments and different arguments about what deflation effectively meant uh, for the country at that time. And instead of just talking about in terms of investors or GDP or whatever it was, what did this sort of deflation mean for your average American or your average immigrant uh, working on the farm or in the factory in the cities? Uh, was it good? Was it bad? Was it a mix? In general, the deflation of the period we were talking about uh, was not bad. In general, that's an important qualification. <laughs> I'll explain that a little further later, but uh, it's important to recognize, first of all, that the, the deflation rate, at least the average deflation rate, was quite mild. It was less, it was less than 2%, closer than 1.5% annual deflation for this long period ranging roughly from 1873 until 1896. So that's a very mild rate of deflation, first of all. But more importantly, it was a rate of deflation that was roughly equal to the rate of productivity growth in the economy. In other words, goods were getting cheaper to produce at about the same rate as their prices were, were falling. So what did that mean? Well, it meant, first of all, that the deflation was uh, conveying a useful signal. It was it was making it obvious that things were getting cheaper. That is, uh, uh, deflation doesn't always do that because it can happen even when goods aren't getting cheaper. But in this case, in these years, the deflation was a relatively honest indication of the real state of economic productivity in general. Now, there were some years when uh, there were crises and you had more serious deflation, and that was undesirable. That sort of deflation wasn't related to improvements in productivity or reductions in goods, cost of production. It was instead a result of crises that, that caused total spending to collapse. And <clears throat> that sort of deflation uh, is, is undesirable. But for the most part, again, the deflation of the long period between 1873 and 1896 was was the productivity-based deflation. Now, having said that, what that meant was that for most people, for most workers, for example, their paychecks weren't getting smaller, even though prices were falling. Their paychecks weren't. In fact, uh, nominal earnings were going up during this time for most people. So uh, 
because of that, but also because prices of, of final goods were falling, they actually were enjoying substantial gains in, in purchasing power and real consumption. So the average person was certainly becoming better off. There were exceptions, though. And uh, it wasn't a small except They weren't small because they included agriculture. Agriculture uh, was becoming relatively less prosperous in the United States, partly because farms were also becoming more productive and they, they didn't need as many of them. <laughs> the, goods, the prices of farm products were falling relatively faster than other prices. So farming was not uh, uh, a sector of the economy that was prospering as well as others. And farmers had debts to pay, etc. And so they're confronting falling prices that mean the real value of their debts is going up. Again, if they'd been enjoying more real earnings like most people, the fact that they're paying higher interest rates would have been a wash. But in fact, they're not as well off as others. So they're pretty grumpy about the fact that their dollars are, are, are uh, their debts are increasing in real terms. So uh, the farm lobby, to call it that somewhat anachronistically, but uh, the farm interests of that period became more and more disgruntled as the deflation wore on. And since those interests were much more important back then than today, their complaints amounted to a very uh, serious and important political movement. And they were the ones who supported uh, the silver movement. They were among the supporters of the move for so-called free silver, which is starting to coin silver again. Uh, a silver standard would have involved less, less deflation. Some of them also were fans of greenbackism, a different movement with the same overall aims, this time calling for the government to issue more greenbacks as a way to get prices to not fall uh, uh, over time and maybe rise a little. So that's the basic story. But the main thing that has to be, I think, uh, drawn from it is that deflation wasn't harmful for everybody, but it did harm certain groups. And one heard lots of complaints from those groups. And that has given people, I think, a somewhat uh, misleading impression of, of, of how deflation affected everybody in the economy. It has given the impression that everybody was hurt by it, whereas in fact only certain groups suffered and others did relatively well. So you, you mentioned and the, that, the, that the farmers, they had legitimate uh, issues here. What, within the constraints of what, how people thought economically at the time, what were the options to help farmers um, with these uh, with these cash crunches, if you will. Well, that uh, that question was the six million dollar question, not only back in the nineteenth century in the last decades of it, but it was would remain the huge question well into the twentieth century when uh, the uh, farmers were among those suffering the most uh, in the 1920s, but even more so in the Great Depression. So th this is a very persistent problem. And I'm afraid that the, 
The reason it was so, and the reason it was very hard to solve, was that fundamentally the, what was changing was the need for so much agricultural production or so many people working in agriculture. You had an economy that was gradually transitioning away at, from agriculture, where uh, existing farms were becoming more productive, but world markets were also becoming more important. And uh, ultimately, the solution was for people to get out of the farms and move to the cities where there were better opportunities. But that's easy to say and hard to do. Uh, but short of that, short of there being an actual change in, in demographics where, um, where, where you have labor uh, reallocated away from agriculture toward producing other stuff, there was no easy solution. Of course, there, there could be transfers from the government, and that is part of what, the, what happened during the 1930s under the New Deal with the Agricultural Adjustment Act. It was a concerted effort to boost the uh, farm earnings relative to earnings elsewhere uh, by taxing food processors and others and, 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 uh, and subsidizing uh, farming while also uh, uh, having farmers reduce their crops to raise the prices. So th that, that was ultimately what took place, but there was no easy solution that didn't involve either having people relocate to non-agricultural jobs or resorting to some kind of welfare system to allow them to maintain their livelihoods in, a, in, a, in an economy where agricultural goods were becoming cheaper and cheaper relative to other things. Okay, so having covered the challenges and uh, debates over the value of goods and the effects of deflation, uh, let's talk about the, the institution that everybody recognizes today, uh, but few people understand, including myself. Um, roughly at the end of this period, in the year 1913, uh, Congress passes and establishes what's known as a Federal Reserve System uh, for, I guess, issuing money or serving as a lender of last resort. Uh, which is meant to, I guess, be a kind, uh, I guess it serves, you'll tell me it probably served a couple of motives, but one of the reasons was, was that there'd been an, quite a number of what were called then panics in 1873 and uh, 1893, uh, and I think a near one in 1907, which caused a lot of damage, a lot of fallout, banks collapsed, a lot of people reduced to destitution. Um, but I recently came across the fact that uh, when these things happened, there was something of a system in place called the New York Clearinghouse, uh, perhaps in collaboration sometimes with the federal government that did uh, provide something of a backstop in case uh, the money supply ran out. Um, could that have served as an alternative or perhaps a more mixed system served as an alternative? Or was the shift to a federal reserve system really just inevitable? I don't think the shift uh, to the Fed, the establishment of the Fed, was inevitable in the sense that there were no other solutions. I don't even think it, it was inevitable in the sense of being the best solution. Uh, certainly, uh, governments would rather have central banks than other arrangements, but uh, that's partly because 
of uh, the favors that central banks do for governments themselves and not necessarily because they're the best solution for economic stability. And they certainly weren't. Uh, the Fed certainly wasn't the best solution in 1913 to the problems that you mentioned that took place before the crises. In fact, I'd say it was something like the second or third, the third or maybe fourth best. In order to understand that, though, to understand what the other solutions were and how they worked, including the clearinghouse actions that you mentioned, it's necessary to go back to what I was saying earlier about what had happened to the U.S. currency during and after the Civil War. And uh, so, as, as you'll recall, uh, after the Civil War, we were left with greenbacks and national banknotes as the only currencies. And uh, this, this change had, had served its purpose, to some extent, of helping to finance the Civil War. That was part of the goal. But ultimately, the arrangements that, that were useful for that purpose proved to be very harmful for the course of economic stability after the Civil War. And, and indeed, they were the reason why we ended up with all those crises. So what were those arrangements? Well, the greenbacks, of course, were used as a, 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 a direct supplement to government revenues, basically printing press money. But because of the fear of abuse of greenbacks, an absolute limit was placed on their amount, and that was that. So they were never going to grow over time when that limit was reached, which happened fairly early. Despite the greenbackers who wanted more, they didn't get more. So that part of the currency supply is absolutely rigid. The national banknotes, those had to be backed 110% by U.S. government securities. This was part of the war finance uh, motive. This was a, a result of the war finance motive for setting up national banks. The idea was that in order for them to supply currency, they'd have to help the government by buying some of its debt. And during the war, of course, that was uh, very beneficial. But that too led to rigidity because after the Civil War, the government started issuing less debt. It started actually to retire its debt. It hasn't done that much lately, but, but it used to do it back then, and it did it for much of the post-Civil War period. As it did that, the availability of the bonds that were legally required to as backing for national banknotes declined. And therefore, the, amount, the total amount of national banknotes that could be issued declined. So we had two kinds of paper currency, greenbacks, which were absolutely fixed in amount, so they couldn't go up, and national banknotes, which, which instead of increasing in supply over time, declined. In fact, you had half as many national banknotes circulating in 1890 as in 1880. Now, if you think about a nation that's growing a lot, which the United States was, population, output, any measure of economic activity is growing steadily and rapidly during this time. Such a nation normally is going to require more units of money of all kinds. Of course, deflation itself the, helps to increase the real money supply, but uh, only relatively mildly, as I mentioned before, not to any great extent. 
But here we had a situation where the, the uh, nominal stock of money was declining rapidly and the economy was growing quickly. Uh, to some extent, people were able to cope much of the time. But every once in a while, you'd get a situation, particularly most likely in the autumn, when there was a peak demand for currency to move the crops, to pay the migrant workers. Then, often, the money market would tighten up. Farmers would want to have more currency. Their banks couldn't afford to issue more because the bonds were too scarce. The greenback supply was fixed. The banks would find themselves having to hand out legal tender reserves, not their own banknotes, but gold or greenbacks, whatever they had on hand. And if they didn't have enough, they would draw on their correspondence. They would have correspondent accounts typically in some city bank, and then the city bank would have correspondent balances in New York. So suddenly you'd get this great drain of, of cash reserves from New York City and uh, into the countryside, a general tightening up of credit, and in the worst cases, a major financial crisis. And that was what happened in 1873, in 1884, in 1893. 1907 was a little different because the panic started with uh, trust companies. It really wasn't a banking panic. The banks were okay at that time. Anyway, the, the point here is we had this rigid currency system set up during the Civil War, and that system was no good for long-term stability. And so uh, uh, the question was, what are you going to do about this? Particularly after 1907, which was a big, big panic, even though it was a little different from the others, it was clear that we couldn't keep the status quo. We had to do something. And um, there were a number of proposals. The most sensible proposals, and a lot of people were pushing for these, or had been pushing, in fact, for, some, for over a decade, they were pushing to deregulate the U.S. currency supply. What they wanted to do was to let the national banks issue notes based on their general assets, so they didn't have to have those increasingly scarce bonds as backing for their notes. They could back the notes with commercial loans, they could back them with whatever they might back deposits with, with no special constraint. So they really just wanted to get rid of that old Civil War provision. Uh, they wanted, these reformers wanted to do other things as well that were related and more subtly important for keeping the currency elastic. But I'll just mention that many of them saw Canada as a model for what the U.S. should do. And that uh, and, and that's because Canada didn't have any crises during this time. It had a gold standard, so in that respect it was the same as the U.S. It had the same gradual deflation because of that, but it didn't have any crises. Now, how come? Well, it had an elastic currency supply, but it wasn't elastic because it was a central bank. Canada didn't have a central bank either until 1935. Instead, it had a bunch of commercial note-issuing banks, a small number compared to the U.S., because they were all able to branch nationwide. So they had hundreds of branches each, but there were only a few dozen banks. And they had no restrictions on their ability to issue notes. They could issue them on general assets. And sure enough, 
In Canada, the currency supply just adjusted to demand. It grew gradually over time. Every fall for the harvest, it peaked, and then it went back down again. It was a, a very successful, stable system. So the reformers naturally say, hey, do you, know, you know, let's try to change that. Unfortunately, for political reasons, uh, which we can get into later on, all their efforts failed. Okay, so um, there was a, they failed because of political opposition to them particularly from New York bankers, ultimately from New York bankers, because they didn't want to see their uh, correspondent business undermined by banks having more freedom to issue their own notes. We can talk more about that, as I said. In the meantime, as you mentioned, clearinghouses tried to help, and they did help. A clearinghouse, it was just a private association formed by various member banks in an area uh, headquartered in a city. And the banks would join the clearinghouse. And all it was normally was a place where uh, different items that banks collected from one another, especially checks that they received during the course of business, would all be uh, uh, reconcile, that is, you'd have clerks who'd figure out which banks owed how much to which other banks, and they would settle usually at the end of every business day. They settle their net dues. That's all a norm, a clearinghouse normally does. But during these crises, the clearinghouses took on a, an, a unique uh, emergency role, which they, clearinghouses, as far as I know, never served a similar role outside of the United States because it wasn't necessary. In Canada, for example, Every region had a clearinghouse, but the clearinghouses never had to act as emergency sources of uh, currency. In the U.S. instead, what happened was, because clearinghouses were not banks at all, they weren't subject to the 10% tax applicable to state bank notes, and therefore they could kind of squeeze around the law and issue what they called clearinghouse certificates, which acted like banknotes and could serve as banknotes in every respect, small denomination, paper, IOUs. The clearinghouses weren't themselves, uh, didn't themselves issue the IOUs or were not the, the, they were not clearinghouse liabilities. They arranged to give them to individual banks and individual banks could then pay their dues to other banks with these extra certificates or hand them out to the public as substitutes for national bank notes or state bank notes. So that's how the clearinghouse has helped to make up for currency shortages, uh, to some extent at least, by issuing emergency currency or providing it to their members as a substitute for those members' inability to issue more of their own notes. And, and they did that to a considerable extent in each of the crises that, uh, that I mentioned. Uh, but of course, uh, they didn't do so enough to make the crises completely go away. So this wasn't a totally satisfactory reform. Uh, finally, I know I've gone on for a while, but uh, because people noticed that these clearinghouse certificates were working well. In 1907, they passed a temporary law. This was before the Federal Reserve Act, 
while they were working on a permanent solution called the Aldrich Freeland Act. And basically the Aldrich Freeland Act formalized the clearinghouse's informal practices of issuing emergency currency, setting up emergency currency associations that could issue emergency currency in a more organized way uh, instead of having to rely on the ad hoc ar arrangements that, uh, that clearinghouses had come to on their own. But otherwise, otherwise the, the Aldridge Vreeland solution to crises was basically uh, uh, in the same spirit as the clearinghouse solution. It was a private solution, just more organized. Well, uh, before the Federal Reserve Act, uh, after the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1914, but before the Federal Reserve had gotten up and running, we had a major crisis with the outbreak of World War I. And so, for the first and only time, the Aldrich Freeland Act kicked in. And it worked splendidly, which tells you something about, again, how there were alternatives to the Federal Reserve Act that may have been better. I would say that on the list of options for solving 19th century style crises, I would rank them as follows. Canadian style deregulation would have been first best, something like the Aldrich Vreeland Act, second best, just letting clearinghouses do it would be third best, and the Federal Reserve, at least to judge from its actual performance during its first uh, couple decades, would be the worst solution. <laughs> and in fact, it was a very bad solution for some time. Wow, that's a great uh, introduction and in just a general course on the subject. Um, so you mentioned that there was political opposition, and I was a little bit surprised that you mentioned that it came from New York bankers, because the Federal Reserve, at least in the common consciousness, is thought of as like a, a progressive uh, reform led by, I guess, uh, upper middle class elites and not necessarily the fat cats. Is this kind of a weird situation where the uh, the interests of people who are normally at odds with each other end up joining together to to bring about this change? And uh, is that what helped uh, make sure the Federal Reserve won? Yes, that's part of the story. Part of the story is that. Part of the story is the old story of how powerful vested interests tend to take control of reforms once they're implemented and twist them and turn them to meet their needs. And part of the story here is sheer accident. <laughs> but the outcome is indeed an arrangement where uh, the Fed ends up uh, serving well the interests of Wall Street, but doing a god-awful job of meeting the uh, crisis demands that it was supposed to uh, meet. And uh, to, to understand uh, what happened, we need first of all to go back and talk about what some people had been calling for in the way of reform. They'd been trying to deregulate the national banks they wanted to make it easier for them to issue notes when more currency was necessary by getting rid of bond backing requirements. But they also wanted to allow banks to branch nationwide, which was another feature of the Canadian system. 
Now, why did they want to let the banks branch nationwide? Well, it was because with branching, since you would have banks everywhere, with their representative branches would be everywhere, or almost everywhere, uh, that would mean that even though banks could more freely issue notes, those notes would have pretty strong homing power. They would, it would be easy for any rival bank that received a bank's notes to uh, send it back at low cost uh, for redemption in, uh, at a branch of the rivals. Uh, of the rival institution. So the idea was that branch banking was a good supplement to what was called asset currency or currency based on general assets because the latter would, the general asset currency would make it easier for banks to issue more when it was needed. But branch banking would help mop up unwanted currency when the need for it subsided, would be like having that many more little uh, <laughs> suction. Uh, suction places that would suck in the currency when it was no longer needed. So anyway, the New York Bank, there were two groups that hated branch banking. And here's where you get into a sort of Baptist and bootlegger story, right? The standard, the classic Baptist and bootlegger story is where they both support prohibition for completely different reasons. The Baptists support it because they don't want people to drink. The bootleggers support it because... <laughs> their business depends on there not being any legal liquor suppliers. Anyway, here you have a similar case where the Baptists are the Main Street banks, the local bankers, and they're worried that other big city banks are going to branch into their territory and put their little banks out of business. They're especially worried, ironically, about New York banks. They think New York banks, Wall Street banks, are going to come into their territory and take over. It's ironic because Wall Street is the also going to be they're like the they're like the bootleggers. The Wall Street banks also hate branch banking because they know that what it means is that banks from other cities will be able to branch into New York. And what that means is nobody will need correspondent accounts in New York City banks. The New York City banks had been making hay, the big ones. They've been making hay with these correspondent balances because if you wanted to tap into the New York market in the absence of branch banking and you were another bank in the off-season, the non-harvest season, why, you'd just have to place deposits at a New York bank. And that was big business for those banks. With branching, you might have a branch of your own in New York, and that would mean no correspondent business for any New York bank. So the New York banks wanted to hold on to this correspondent business, even though it meant a concentration of bank reserves in New York outside of the immediate control of the banks that sent them there, and even though for that reason it also contributed to the crises that occasionally concerned, which had lots of banks all at once scrambling to get their money out of New York. All right. Well, um, after 1907, the the Republicans were in charge of uh, uh, were controlling Congress and the presidency, and um, uh, the first plan for reform that came out of the administration was something called the Aldrich Vreeland Act, uh, named uh, sorry uh, uh, sorry was the Aldrich Vreeland Act, which created the emergency currency we talked about before, 
but also uh, came up with something called the Aldrich Plan for permanent reform. And the Aldrich Plan, in its outlines, basically preserved the correspondence system so the New York bankers were behind it. In fact, New York bankers helped plan it at a secret meeting at Jekyll Island. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that really happened. When the Democrats came into power, of course, <laughs> that was bad news for Aldrich and his uh, Wall Street pals, except that when uh, Wilson appointed Carter Glass to shape the Democratic proposal for monetary and currency reform, Glass had to find an expert to turn to, to help him, and on the advice of his uh, sons who went to uh, West Point, he ended up choosing their teacher there, their economics teacher, and uh, he happened to have been a student of uh, another economist, Lawrence Laughlin, who had helped design the Aldrich plan. The bottom line is that what Glass came up with was a plan that in many respects turned out to be very similar to the previous Republican plan. That was the accident. That was the coincidence. So when the Federal Reserve Act uh, is passed, even though it's, it wasn't the direct product of the machinations of Nelson Aldrich and his Wall Street buddies, it kind of resembled what they'd come up with uh, in many respects. And it had the same advantages for the New York bankers of preserving their hegemony over that market, preserving the correspondent system that they relied on, not allowing branch banking, not allowing banks to issue their own notes more freely. And, uh, um, and so um, <laughs> that was what we ended up with. And it didn't solve uh, the problem of financial crises. In fact, within the first two decades of the Fed's establishment, but especially in the early 1930s, there were more banking crises than there had been in the preceding uh, two decades. So, uh, uh, and, and a big episode of inflation during World War I and for a couple of years after to boot, uh, for a year after. So, um, uh, uh, that's why I say that this solution was uh, really... Uh, <laughs> Far, far from being a, a very good one. Oh, and I forgot to mention that, sure enough, the Wall Street bankers became powerful uh, participants in the Federal Reserve System. Paul uh, Warburg was uh, w one of the people who uh, uh, served in the Federal Reserve System, who had been responsible in the past for helping to create the uh, uh, Aldrich Plan. And the New York Federal Reserve, which was more beholden to the New York bankers, to Wall Street, ended up playing an outside role in governing the procedures and actions of the Federal Reserve as a whole, which is, it has continued to play ever since. And that's the capture component of the story. So, bottom line, the, Wall, uh, the Federal Reserve turns out to be very much a good solution from Wall Street's point of view 
terrible solution from the point of view of the public as a whole looking for a way to put an end once and for all to financial crises. I don't think there's anything more to say. You have given me and I uh, hope my listeners an excellent, thorough, detailed introduction to a very complicated subject. I thank you very much and uh, thank you very much for coming on, Dr. Seldon. You're very welcome, Ari. I hope that...